This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So we're back with another holiday episode. We have a missing person here. He goes in the name is Mark Second. And then his name is number that mind is MP65833. His name is Roy Andrew Gite, G-U-Y-T-O-N. He's a white male who was 46 years old when he went missing on December 25th, 1990. His nickname is R.A. It says that uh, he was reported missing after uh, he wasn't seen in the days after Christmas Day by his family. All of his belongings, pets, and items were inside of the residence. He's between 5 feet 7 and 5'11". For his height, between 190 and 200 pounds, he had black hair and gray eyes. Uh, he goes missing out of Gordon County, Georgia, a little place called Ranger. If he were alive today, he would be 77 years old. I did not find a lot on Mr. Roy, but I did find a couple references uh, to him. Now, among those references, have, and I guess this happens periodically. Uh, the Gordon County Sheriff's Office on February 6, 2020, they put up a little post and it said, the Gordon County Sheriff's Office routinely investigates reports of this persons. Fortunately, most such cases are resolved rapidly and successfully with a missing person located safely. As of today, on February 6, the Sheriff's Office has four open investigations around the person. For example, the Sheriff's Office received 83 reports or calls for service regarding this person in 2019. 82 of those reports are clear. Many times, the person is located before first responders can arrive. The four open cases date from 1993-2019. Our most recent case sadly ended every other missing body. In addition to an open 1993 case, that's pretty he goes missing at the end of 1992 at Christmas, and it's opened in 1993. There is one from 2008, a Stephanie R. Day, 
one from 2016, Michelle N. Gibson, and one from 2019, Rebecca S. None of these cases are connected, and there's no reason to believe any of the new one. There's no evidence of foul play in these cases. None of these persons reported to these cases are still active. The sheriff's office is like all other agencies audited annually the GBI to ensure that missing remain open. It is our understanding that Keeslin Noel Roberts, 20, address was reported missing on January 2020. On January 18th, deputies responded to 911 call concerning a suspicious female person. Upon arrival, the deputies learned that the suspicious female had been seen, but they did recover a bag containing misidentification in a restricted employee-only area of business. This Robert's automobile was found at the truck stop and rescued by a family member. However, Gordon County Sheriff's Office is not made aware of it. The Gordon County Sheriff's Office coordinating with the Murray County Sheriff's Office in the furtherance of the case. Detectives have learned there is an outstanding warrant for arrest on file with Whitfield County Sheriff's Office for the offensive violation issued on January 17th. Uh, investigating officers from both jurisdictions working to locate Robert safety. There is no evidence at this time of any connection between Mrs. Roberts and Caleb and Smith, age 21, who was reported missing at the flying Saint, whose body was found near Sugar Valley on February 2nd, 2020. There is no evidence that the people are acquainted or cases connected. The investigation into these matters are ongoing, and any new pertinent information released to the public in a timely fashion. If anyone has any information, Regarding any of these cases, contact the sheriff. They list their phone number there. I only mentioned this because I thought it was a very interesting post that's sort of being reposted in Gordon County Sheriff's Office. And just generally speaking, there's a lot to unpack there in how they're handling things. And they point out that, like, they would have 83 cases, for instance, in 2019. 82 of those are clear. Right, which is um, actually pretty common it's kind of on par with what we come to expect from these cases right and uh eventually you know all of them will be cleared and then as you go through you know as more time passes you will get to intervals where years will go by and like the cases will all be cleared and then you'll have one or two that are still open right but for the most part, um, that was really, was was that on social media or just like on their website or? It was their Facebook page. Okay. And so they must be, um, it seems like they're ask, they're answering a lot of unspoken questions. Is that, is that kind of stuff? I mean, like they're getting hints or tips that they don't need or something? I am, I think they're, I, uh, I, I kind of, I, I don't think they're unspoken questions. I think they're answering a lot of questions that are being asked of them or questions that are being applied to their work. I mean, unspoken in the sense that, like, they're not right there, like, at an FAQ. Yeah, I would tend to agree with what you're saying. Right. They're just, they're addressing things that, I guess, have come up. Yeah, it definitely seems like that. It seems like 
they're trying to figure out a way to blanket answer a bunch of stuff. Right. Um, so Roy Andrew Guyton, is that how you say Guyton, yeah. Okay, so he was he was last seen in Ranger, which was in Gordon County, Georgia. From what I found, Ranger has a population as of 2010 of 131 people. It's very small. Right. And so that was up from 85 10 years earlier in 2000. I don't know what the latest is. And somebody was nice enough to look it up and... It appears that uh, Roy had been incarcerated for burglary, and that, but that had happened in 1971. Yeah, I wasn't 100% sure if that was him. Um, well, let's see. 1971, this person was 25, and in 1992, this person was 26. So the age adds up. And because there's only, well, in, in 2000, there were 85 people that lived in that town, right? Oh, but this is the whole county. I didn't get that information. I, I kind of, you know, made a connection there because it seemed like such a small place. It would be unlikely there'd be another guy named that there because his name was Roy A. Guy. And the physical description that's available matched. Okay. Well, I can buy that. I uh, I don't have a lot of extra information on him. He is not mentioned in a lot of places. Um, I found an obituary for a Roy Guy in Georgia in 2019. The 2019 obituary I found said that he's 79 years old. So run a little math on what do you get? If he would have been 79, so there's a Roy Guyton in Georgia that would have been 79 in 2019. Mm -hmm. It's the wrong math, but it's the same guy. I don't know, so I don't know what you want to do about math. 29 minus 79, 1940? Right, as opposed to the gentleman that we're talking about, he would have been, he'd be 77 today. So it... There's another Roy Guyton that has a similar age range who passes away in 2019. And so the, the, the ages are slightly different. And I wondered if this was not a case of someone walking away. So, well, he left his pet behind. I, I know. From that, the next thing I would typically do, if, like, if we were doing more than just, you know, mentioning these guys because they went missing on Christmas. I'd like to see what the weather was like. Oh, you because, think it's might be something? Okay. Well, his, his residence appeared undisturbed. All of his belongings were still there. His pets were still there. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I guess you could be like so despondent uh, that you don't make arrangements for your animals, but that just doesn't seem... It doesn't really seem like something somebody leaving on purpose would do. Okay. Do you think? No, I mean, not necessarily. I Actually, uh, most of the time, though, pets are sometimes what keep people that would otherwise be suicidal alive, right? Yeah. I'm just, I mean, I'm just saying that, like, they give somebody purpose and 
I think it's possible if it was cold or snowing or something, right? Uh, it, was, it was in the 40s. There was a little bit of rain. Uh, for the most part, the day, uh, December 25th, 1992, and the day after are very similar. There was a little windy. Uh, high for the day was 43 degrees where he lived. And there was less than half an inch of rain. Okay. And then going on through, is there, a, like, I don't know when he was reported missing, but like, just like through January of 93, was there any snow or anything? No snow in December. And no snow in January. I have a little more rain. Okay. And so um, it's, you know, we don't have the information that like, oh, he frequently went out on walk, right? We don't know what his pets were. Like, seems like if you went on walk, dogs with you, uh, things like that, that, you know, we just don't have the information. Um, I always picture anybody that um, lived alone, which from everything I can see here, he did. And he was 46, which isn't old, but it also isn't young, right? Right. Um, but I always wonder, like, well, have a heart attack, right? Did he go on a walk and have a heart attack or something to that effect? You don't give any mention of a vehicle being missing? No. And... Somebody, no. This isn't a case where he was dropped off at his house, right? He was no. just last seen. I think he was day. seen with, like, uh, either seen or talked to, made a last contact being Christmas Day, and then when he's not seen for a little bit, a missing person. Right, and so that could be, you know, depending on the situation, if he didn't talk to people but once a week, right? I mean, it could have been, you know... Even after he missed them the first week, they might not have reported him missing immediately. That, so. that could definitely, it, you know, this is just one of those cases. In terms of like him coming in here, he fit the some of the criteria that you were looking for. He's a slightly older male. He definitely has lived on his own to some degree. In, in my opinion, for the most part, if you have pets, you at least have some. Even if you don't do great with pets. You have some understanding of the responsibilities of it. And it was worth uh, somebody mentioning, right? Absolutely. I think, I think it is a big deal. And anytime there's dogs, cats, or whatever left behind, I, I wonder, like, what really happened to that person? And I know that, like, a, a percentage of those cases could be that people genuinely did walk away from it. I think it's less likely. I think the pets are are a really strong indication against it unless he just knew, you know, that his brother would come take his animals or something like that, which, you know, we don't have that information, but I hope that, um, you know, cause it really boils down to they, they're either out in the element somewhere, whether it's purposeful or not, or that there's foul play involved. Right. Yes. When, when you're looking at a situation where everything at home is totally normal, right? Yeah. You know, that's really all you can uh, go off of there. And, you know, which is essentially nothing because there's endless possibilities both ways. Yeah. I think you can easily get endless possibilities out of some of the cases like this. I, you know, when I look at these, um, I often wonder. Do the cops 
have the same idea that you had. Like, uh, they don't take as much information down. They expect the guys to show back up. And then by the they're behind the eight ball, I realize it's actually. Right. And I think that that is the case, especially like the early 90s true crime. I mean, it was, we had like American Miss Wanted and like Unsolved Mysteries, but for the most part, like true crime had not exploded yet. Right. I feel like missing persons cases were taken less seriously. And uh, actually, I don't feel that way. I'm sure of it, right? Um, it was always the understanding that somebody would come back, initially, at least. Unless there was, like, a pool of blood, right? Yeah. The last place that they were. And so, if you take that into consideration for the time period, and then you go, this is a 46-year-old man in Georgia. I feel like, you know, he was probably not considered... Uh, to be, I, I would doubt very seriously even today if they had considered him to have possibly been a victim of anything. I, I definitely think it would have, if, if we give them the benefit of the doubt and we say, yes, they eventually figured out this was probably a crime, again, I stand by the statement. It's too, too late. late. Right. The, the evidence wasn't well, collected. We wandered this direction. And, you know, without, and so you have to think that through. The house isn't disturbed and you know, I feel like one way a middle-aged man can be victimized would be with a, a firearm, right? Yep. Because um, that will stop anybody in their tracks. But usually there's evidence of that, right? Or evidence of, like, how they ended up where they got for a firearm to be used or whatever, right? Or somebody saw something. And I do think that um, that in-between, especially now that we're in... 2023 right 31 yeah. years later i mean if if the investigators that took the missing persons report knew that in you know 31 years this is still not going to be solved they probably would have paid a whole lot more attention right or they would have swept the whole thing under the rug so nobody knew they did it one or the other <laughs> nobody knew they did what exactly <laughs> no wait what do you mean though like if they if they bungled it right, and you're saying oh oh oh, I see what you're saying. I feel well. I do think that I don't think that they're doing it out of like callousness and not believing that you know somebody is genuinely a victim of something. I feel like they're going. This 46 year old man can take care of himself, and we got other things to deal with. I think that's just. I think what you just said sort of sums up what happened. Well, sure. And then, like, as time goes by, sure, they probably realize, well, that's not normal, right? But as, like you said, it, it's too late, right? Correct. And so anything in the meantime is just lost. And now it's sort of at the point where it's like, well, I mean, what can be done? Well, not a whole lot, right? Right. Um, and beyond, you know, hoping he's found at some point, who knows? Um, I, I sometimes wonder, you know, because every single missing person case in NamUs, it's either somebody that ran away, like, and that means, like, a child, but uh, somebody that started a new life, uh, somebody that, that had foul play involved, right? Yeah. Or um, somebody that committed suicide, right? And that's, and I guess 
occasionally there's accidental things too, like cars. A lot of people in cars are, you know, they've had accidents and they're still in their car. The car's just can't be seen. And so that's not really foul play. That's just an accident. And so all of them get divided into just these like few piles, right? Yep. And then you've got some crossover ones that you wonder about. And I'd like to know one day, like, okay, well, how many of these people really are just, you know, they fell off the bottom of a cliff. I mean, they fell off the top of a cliff and they're, they're now resting at the bottom of the cliff, right? Uh, like the earlier case we talked about, right? Yes. Yep. And that, you know, who in a million years would have thought that was the case? Nobody, right? And so it's just, it, it's fascinating to me um, that this poor guy is still unaccounted for. Yeah, it is. And he is a Christmas missing person. This is Roy Guyton. Um, you can look him up if you know anything about him. Uh, there are several people that are, it, it appears they are actively looking. Uh, they, uh, primarily, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation has an open uh, 1990 case file on him. Uh, with Adam Jones, special agent down there, and Melissa Pope, case with Namus. So you can easily go to namus.gov and just look up 65833, and you'll see the name Roy Andrew Guyton, R.A. Guyton. Uh, and you could contact him that way. Now, I have an exoneration there that is, uh, it's a weird, I don't, how, how much did you read into this? Just the, the basics, or I uh, for, the court doc for Mary Reed. Yeah, um, I just I have the basic story. Okay, so this is a Westchester County, New York case from 1972. That's when the crime occurred. Now the conviction occurs in 1973. The exoneration occurs in 1976. The sentence was four to fifteen years. Uh, we don't know a lot about the uh, the convicted person she has a pretty generic I have a lot of court files that are about her but I don't know her age her race I just know that uh, she's a woman her name is Reed now the, the way that this goes uh, it's, it's pretty bizarre and we've seen we've talked about cases like before where someone is convicted of a crime or a crime like not at all uh, this is a particularly interesting. The summary of this, it comes from the National Registry of Exoneration. Eight months together. Sort of a simple summary to start out. I'm just going to read like a couple paragraphs here. We'll talk. Mary Reed was convicted of manslaughter following a 1970 shooting in a bar in Mount Vernon, New York. In 1985, her conviction was overturned and she was awarded compensation for imprisonment an unjust conviction, only to later have the competition. According to the sole witness, a barmaid named Loretta Mitchell Hook, a man approached Mary Reed with a razor in his hand in a Mount Vernon, New York bar the night of January 2. Booker alleged that Reed shot this man, John Banks, to death. The authorities arrested Reed based on a rent receipt and her name on left in the bar, an identification made by Booker. One of the things you're going to notice about the talk 
is a lot of these dates and stuff don't make sense. They don't even line up meaning this particular nomination entry. Reed claimed that she had amnesia on the night in question. That's Mary Reed saying, I've got amnesia. I have no memory of what happened. In February of 1972, she gets indicted for manslaughter and possession of a weapon. With Cloretta Booker's testimony, it provided the most substantive evidence in the case against her. So the case goes to trial in April of 1970. The prosecution successfully relied on regarding the shooter, but then sought to undermine her credibility regarding her statement that Banks had approached the razor, which suggested Reed had been acting in self-defense. The jury convicted Reed of first-degree manslaughter and felony possession of a weapon. Her conviction was based on Booker's testimony and the rent receipt. Despite the fact that no one else from the bar saw Reed there that night and there was no physical evidence connecting her to the she was sentenced to an indeterminate, uh, indeterminate term, 4 to 15 years. And in 1974, that conviction affirmed. On October 14, 1975, Mary Reed was paroled after serving three years in prison. The following year, her conviction was reversed by the Court of Appeals, and her indictment was dismissed in 1976 based on a lack of evidence connected to the crime. Part of the decision for the reversal rested on the refusal of the original trial court to allow a medical expert to testify on behalf of Mary regarding her history of amnesia stemming from a 1965 car accident and her amnesia on the night of the crime. The Court of Appeals also found that prosecution had failed to prove guilt on reasonable doubt because it had not produced one single witness other than Booker who saw Reed in the bar. In 1984, the state of New York passed the Unjust Conviction and Imprisonment, which entitled citizens wrongly convicted and were imprisoned to compensation for the hardship. Reed filed a claim under this new act in 1985, stating she deserved compensation for her time in prison. On December 12, 1985, the court determined that Reed was unjustly convicted and found the state liable. On August 10, 1987, the Supreme Court of New York affirmed this finding. And finally, on June 21, 1980, Reed was awarded $450,000 damage. However, on March 21, 1991, Reed's case went before the New York Court of Appeal. The states claimed that no definite, clear, or convincing proof existed that Reed did not commit any of the crimes for which she had been convicted, and therefore she was not entitled to compensation. On May 7, 1991, Reed lost her awarded compensation. The court stated that a reversal of the conviction did not mean actual innocence. Reed never What do you think of that case? I think that it's pretty random. And honestly, my main question was, the sole witness, uh, Claretta Booker, indicating that John Banks approached Mary Reed with a razor in his hand. Mm-hmm. I immediately was like, why wasn't this self-defense? Well, it's interesting that you should say that. Um, I snagged the Court of Appeals of the State of New York. Uh, one of the, actually, I, I snagged all of I have so many court documents. 
but I got the July 6th opinion from 1976. Okay. All right. So I wanted to run this by you, um, and I'm going to read it in chunks, and I want to see if you see this differently. Again, so this is submitted April 30th, 1976, and it's it's decided on July 6th, 1976. There's several people involved from the appellate division itself. The so we have Robert McGooey is he's the appellate attorney, and then we have Carl Vergari, uh, district attorney. He has James Rose representing the district attorney's office. Um. And this is the opinion on that, but there are other court documents. This is just where I sort of landed and I stuck here. Uh, in the early morning hours, so I'm going to read the, the sort of facts and proce- the procedural history in, in, in chunks here, but I'm not going to read the whole document. I just want to read you this portion to see if it sparks up. Okay. In the early morning hours of January 8th, 1972, John Banks was found dead at Cloud 9 Bar, a single bullet chest. The angle of the bullet was slightly down. He had a blood alcohol reading of 0.29, indicating that the deceased person had been highly intoxicated. Banks's body had been found a few feet from the serving, so like the big bar where the bartenders stand behind him. And from his pocket, the police recovered a straight razor that was wrapped in dollar there was There was, however, some disagreement between two of the officers testified as whether the razor had been found in the pants pocket or that of Jack. The testimony provided a description of the cloud line as having limited exits, locked doors, and a guard door, making exit by any other than the front door difficult, if not possible. So this building set up like a funnel. You go in the front door, you go out the front door. It's really all you can do. In the backyard of the cloud nine, Find a 25 caliber pistol approximately 15 feet from the rear of the front. The only footprints in that vicinity that they can see are those of the officer who recovered this weapon. Once it was found, the pistol was carried suspended on a pen by the officer to his captain, the latter of whom took care of removing the ammunition but took no care to preserve possible fingerprints. Were it not for the testimony of the barmaid on duty, Loretta Mitchell Hooker, that there, then there would have been no evidence con- connecting Mary Reed with the shooting. In fact, no evidence connected her with the premises in which the shooting occurred, except for a pocketbook, the contents of which included a rent receipt name. So it was found that was found open upon a tabletop in the bar's kitchen. All right, so. Two things connecting Mary Reed to the situation are Cloretta says she was there. She's the barmaid behind the counter. And Mary Reed, her name is on a rental receipt that is inside of a pocket that is sitting in the bar's little kitchen on a tabletop. Does that make sense? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Cloretta Booker, when called as a witness by people, she describes the event at the Cloud Nine Bar. Question. She testified that at nine o'clock she came on and that sometime thereafter Banks and later Banks, who had seated himself near the middle of the serving bar, moved closer to the appellate. And, the, and so that's gonna be Mary Reed. She's seated at the far end of the bar. The witness says she could hear Banks cussing 
and subsequently overheard part of a conversation between Banks and the appellate where Banks said, I will give you my own mess and you won't hurt me. To that, the appellate responded that she was not bothering Banks. The witness testified that she suggested appellate go downstairs where Banks would not bother her. And after finishing her beer, appellate got up, taking her belongings, started to walk to the rear of the premises, away from the front door, and out of the witness's view. The deceased also got up, razor in hand, and followed the appellate. So, so this guy gets up and follows Mary Reed out towards the back area. The appellant was heard to say, don't cut me. And Banks took another step toward the appellant, and the witness heard a shot. Banks stepped back against the serving bar, Razor still in the hand, blood coming from his mouth, and after falling to the floor, the razor remained beside him, still open. The witness testified that after the shooting, she saw the point of the gun in Mary Reed's hand, and that she and another barman, Evelyn Croft, placed their hands upon those of Mary Reed, the latter saying he was going to cut them. After the incident, Mary Reed left the cloud nine by the front door. Apparently failing to give a detailed description of what occurred as she had in a previous written statement, the prosecution requested that the witness be permitted to refresh her recollection by using such statement. So she makes a statement that night, and the police write it down. But when she gets on the stand, she's not really remembering it the same way. So the prosecution arranges for her to use her previous statement to give testimony. Do you follow all that? I do. Um, that's kind of odd. It's odd. It's depending on the witness. It's not as odd as you might think. Well, a lot of times investigators will um, refer back to their notes. Yeah, their notes or reports they've submitted or narratives they've submitted. They're frequently made available. Right, but for like an eyewitness uh, to use notes. I find it odd, but I guess maybe it does happen. But. Well, so during the course of this testimony, and for the specific reason that what she is testifying to is wildly different from that of the state, the prosecution requested that the witness be declared hostile. And so the reason that they're, they're doing this, are, are you familiar with like how that gets declared in terms of like what the judge is looking for there for a hostile witness it's when somebody um is like specifically testifying the opposite way they expect yeah so when a witness at trial whose testimony whose testimony is untruthful or appears to be contrary to the legal position of whoever called them they can be Treated as a hostile witness, either, I, I think it's only under um, direct examination, they can ask questions that might seem to be more cross-examination. So there, you, you can call them a hostile witness or an adverse party or an unfavorable witness. Generally speaking, what it allows to happen is that leading questions can be used to suggest the answer um, to get the witness to go down a truthful path or during direct testimony, right. during direct testimony or 
to challenge the witness testimony. Leading questions are generally only allowed during cross-examination. So if you hear leading the witness, that is typically somebody's direct testimony. But if they're declared a hostile witness, meaning the prosecution can't get, in this instance, what they want out of Booker, and they're declared hostile, the idea is they're going to ask leading questions, but they have to do it based in this instance, it's going to be based on the fact that her testimony she's given in the court in front of those who are going to decide this case, the judge, jury, doesn't match the statement she gave to the police that led to the charges of the person. All right. Is that enough information about hostile witness? I think that that's enough. Okay. Basically, so, we expected her to say one thing and she was not going along with it. Right. So the judge, the court... Or the judge in the sense, he he grants these requests. He allows the prosecutor to lead the witness in by declaring her hostile. And also allows the judge to the judge allows the prosecutor to give Booker her statement. By the use of these leading questions, the jury learned that the witness in her statement had described Mary's first words after the shooting and after the witness pulled her hands as turn me loose or I will shoot. So that's an antagonistic move on the part of Mary. Basically, they're interpreting it as Loretta Booker said that Mary Reed threatened an innocent person bar who was trying to get her hands. By way of leading question, the witness was asked if she had told one of the investigating officers on the night of the shooting that she suddenly heard a shot and saw Banks fall back off the stool. To this question, the witness's response was the definitive no. So while Cloretta Booker's testimony implicates Mary Reed, it's also exculpatory for it provides a description of circumstances constituting a defensive justification. Namely, that Mary Reed, unable to escape bank dancing at brandishing a razor, protected herself by firing a fatal shot in self-defense. Does that answer your like the, the primary question there? I mean, I guess I, I, it doesn't really answer why, uh, why it wasn't considered self-defense really, does it? Well, no, we're going to keep going. I'm just saying like, the, but that's what you expected is that it would be that type of the, the defense is like, it was a just a shoot. I can't imagine a situation where a, um, a, an eyewitness would indicate uh, a defendant had been accosted by a man with a razor and that it would be anything but self-defense. But, I mean, that's not what happened, so it's fine. No, it, it didn't happen. Um, so the way that this goes down is kind of, it's, it's weird for a couple of reasons, and the court touched on that here. So, by jury verdict, Mary Reed was convicted of the crimes of manslaughter in the possession of a weapon, or appliance, on appeal, in support of the conviction, the people are arguing that the physical evidence presented contradicted the barmaid's testimonial evidence as to the manner of death, and that while their witness was credible when she testified that Mary Reed shot bank, her testimony as to the manner in which the shooting occurred was contradicted by the evidence, thus the witness was not so they're trying to have it both ways. 
they're saying that Booker is saying that Banks brandishes a razor. And the razor is found in his pocket, jacket pocket. They, they want their witness to both be credible and to be wrong. Right. And typically that doesn't really work out, right? Um, in most cases it would. But in this case, it kind of weirdly works to the state's favor, even though it's ultimately done. Uh, in the testimony, and I'm not sure if it was her state, I think it was when she was talking before she was uh, declared hostile and uh, forced to read her initial statement. Um, it's my understanding from everything that it was the rent receipt in the purse that ultimately was the connection, right? That had her name on it, I guess. Yeah, there was a there was a Mary Reed written on the rent receipt in the open purse on the tabletop. The I so the way they presented this in the court document is she had time to set purse down, retrieve the gun from it, and turn back on Bang, and that is what connects her like to the bar that night, to the crime, and to the fact that she was sort of planning to do something with Bang Right. And so, um, additionally, uh, based on uh, the bartender's testimony, the rent receipt being what, you know, connected her, it asserted, at least here in the summary write-up, that um, no one else had seen her at the bar. But it seemed like Claretta Booker's initial testimony at least contradicted that, indicating that an the other uh, bartender on duty had, like, assisted her after the incident, right? Right. And so she would have seen Mary Reed as well. Or did I misunderstand something? What do you mean? Like, you're saying that the other, like, you're talking about Evelyn? Right. Uh, because it says that there was nobody else that said that Mary Reed was at the bar except for Claretta Booker. Yeah, so there's a bunch of other people that play into the sort of story that the prosecution is setting up and using Loretta Booker to back. And ultimately, none of those people say it was that woman kind of situation. There's no circumstantial proof, no fingerprints, no proof of ownership of the weapon. Nothing else is brought forward to suggest that Mary Reed was in the bar that evening in terms of witnesses. No one else testifies that Mary Reed shot Banks that night, even though they were with So well, it's sort of a load of crap. Well, I was just curious because, um, so was it that nobody saw her shoot him or that nobody saw her at all? From the witnesses that the prosecution presented, neither thing was brought Okay. Whether she, nobody else identified her as being in the bar that night. And I'm not saying that no one saw her. I'm saying no one who testified testified to the fact that she was farther. And in terms of her shooting or not shooting him, other than Claretta Booker, no one testified to any kind of witnessing the shooting or witnessing something that tied into the shooting and Mary. Okay. And besides uh, Claretta Booker indicating 
Evelyn situation, she's not mentioned in the um, recount in the appellate document, right? Loretta Booker is mentioned in here? Like no, no, her- Evelyn, the other one, the other bartender. No, they point out the fact... Oh, so in the appellate documents, they point out the fact that Evelyn Crawford, she features in Loretta Booker's story and in the prosecution's story, but she doesn't get on the stand and say... Okay. I saw Mary Reed or Mary Reed shot Banks, anything like that. Okay, so basically that doesn't come in at all. I mean, except just through the other testimony. Okay, so, and you also mentioned that there was no uh, independent testimony linking her to the weapon? Correct. There was no evidence offered in the trial related to fingerprints or permit or like serial number being traced or any of those things. Nothing that you would normally do today and in various like ways all the way back to days. There was no identifying effort made on the twenty five caliber hand. That okay. Linked Mary Reed to- okay. And then um I guess the hmm. So I get confused, but I guess the court the um the initial court, they were the ones who said they disallowed the medical testimony, right? Yeah, that's where we're, that's the next thing that oh, happens. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. They mentioned this other case, and I'm going to like just blurb it out here so that you can hear it. It's People versus uh, Lead. So, in People versus Lead One, the defendants in that case, Joseph and Eddie Lead One, and they were indicted for murder. The murder they were indicted for was Annie's former husband. His dead body had been found suspended by the neck with a rope from the cross piece over the the vault line in the water closet of home. So basically, he's in the bathroom or hot water closet, whatever he's got going on here. And over the beam, he's got a, a rope that's been tied around his neck. While suicide had originally been found to have been the cause of death, there was an indictment for murder that followed. The testimony of the son of the deceased and Annie provided the only direct proof in the case that the death was anything other than suicide. The trial judge correctly characterized the son's testimony as involved in, quote, hopeless contradiction. He left it to the jury to find whether, on the whole, such testimony implicating the death of police. The Court of Appeals, in reversing the conviction, stated that guilt in such a case cannot be established beyond a reasonable doubt testimony of such a witness was evidently either from moral or mental Take all of that for what you want, but the court here, the appeals court here, says the case before us is remarkably similar to the people that the credibility of the only witness able to testify as to an essential element of the crime, and thus supply the only proof of that element is questioned, not by the defense, not by the court, but by the prosecution. No other witness could be found to testify that Mary Reed was in the bar on that evening, or that Mary Reed shot although there were others in the bar that, including Evelyn Crawford, the office barmaid, who played a part in Claretta Mitchell Booker's narrative. No circumstance no fingerprints, no proof of ownership of the weapon, and it adds to what in all other respects 
by the prosecution is an unbelievable story. So this is the cherry. The burden was upon the people to prove guilt beyond reasonable doubt and to disprove the justif justification defense by like. In this case, in the process of attempting to do the latter, the people failed to accomplish the former. Accordingly, there must be a reversal and a dismissal of the indictment. While not determinative here for us, it's quite significant that Mary, though a genuine victim of amnesia, was not permitted to put that fact to the jury. Appellant's counsel in his opening statement indicated that by cross-examination of prosecution, appellate presented defense of self-defense, their only offer of proof would be psychiatric medical proof to show that the defendant is suffering from an amnesia, a true lack of memory in principle. Dr. Eva Rado, chief of forensic psychiatry at Grassland Hospital, was called to the stand as the only defense witness, but was not permitted to testify to her examination of the appellant, appellant's condition, or to the appellant's medical history, which it appears included a history of amnesia predating the crime stemming from a 1965 car The court, accepting the prosecution's objection that a proper foundation had not been would have required the appellant to take the stand before it would have permitted the doctor to continue. This was an error. No such foundation was necessary. All right. Did you follow what it's saying so far there? Yes, I did. Um, and it's interesting to me that even in, I want to say... 1975, is that right? 76. Is that, is that when it's being, uh, is that when that opinion is happening? Yeah, well, 76 is this opinion. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. No, it was happening during court case, which is 1973, right? Correct. It, it surprises me that in 1973, a trial court judge would make uh, the presumption that um, in order to get a medical expert on the stand, the defendant would have to uh, forego their Fifth Amendment right to yeah. not incriminate themselves. Uh, that, that's a, astonishing. Yeah, that's exactly what the court says here. They're, they're, they're in the same place that you are. So basically, they're saying a defendant should not be required to waiver constitutional privilege and self nation ordered a place before the jury fact relevant hey, Here, the doctor's testimony would have put the fact of the defendant's amnesia into evidence and would have served as an explanation of why the defendant did not take this. An explanation the jury never received the context of the case was expected, where the issue was not whether the fact of the defendant's amnesia could be rather whether such amnesia made the defendant an incapacitated person and therefore unfit to trial. While such trial error, so they're using a different case. Okay. There's a footnote in here, People versus uh, Franca Banderera, the old New York. Um, I don't know how well. I know. While also trial error of itself, uh, which would have required a reversal in a trial, here the prosecution failed to prove the case out as a matter of law, and thus the judgment of conviction reversed the indictment Smith. So basically, they don't even get to the point. They, they leave a note in here and basically say, look, this amnesia thing was serious too, but not as serious as others. 
Right. Um, and so I see the court opinion as uh, being heavily skewed, right? I, I don't know. The court, know. the appellate court? The appellate court, like, yeah, the court that's rendering the opinion that you're reading that uh, overturns the yeah, they're not even remotely interested in the prosecution's case. They destroy it on several grounds. Right, and so in cases like this where you've got, um, you know, they use the precedent that establish, you know, some very confusing uh, testimony that was given to a different jury on a different case, it wasn't, it shouldn't have been done, right? And they're essentially saying, uh, you know, based on that finding, like, this witness should not have been presented, right? Right. Um, I don't know that I 100% understand, um, you know, why that was. But I feel like this is a good example of uh, a jury convicted her, right? Yes, the jury. The jury convicted her, right? First degree manslaughter. Yes. Um, And so, you know, the jury having having been uh, presented this case from this eyewitness and the way juries absorb things and the way court seems to work for, you know, just the average person going in for jury duty or whatever. um, I assume once the the doctor testimony was not allowed, uh, that there was no further defense, right? And Correct. because of that, I think that having presented this witness who said this is what happened, even though it was shaky and it was, uh, you know, it, it was weird. The testimony was weird. Um, I think the jury's like, well, nothing contradicted that. So that's what we have to go off of, right? Pretty much, yeah. And I think that happens a lot of time, right? And so, you know, it seems like... Um, I don't know how the defense would have done it necessarily, but it seems like there were quite a few other things that could have been, you know, explored with regard to, you know, the weapon and um, any other. I I think that the defense could have called um, people from the bar that didn't see this happen, right? That's, yeah. And none of that occurred. Right, but any sort of anything that could have thrown uh, the witness's statement off balance, or um, you know, she was a hostile witness to begin with, yes, and then so she was basically cross-examined twice, and I I think that could have been confusing as well, right? I'm sure it would have been confusing when they get so the prosecution basically brings this woman out, starts asking questions, and. If you think of it in terms of what they were prepared for was for the the witness to give them a, a, a recipe for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, it probably went something like state your name, says name. So, what ingredients do you use for this peanut butter and jelly? And the lady says, "Well, bread." And the prosecutor says, "Do you use anything else?" Said. Well, the stuff you put in Sam. And the prosecution says, What about anything else? What are some of the things that you put in Sam? And she says, Well, you know, bologna and mustard and mayo 
and let it. So the answers she's giving are not steering the prosecution towards the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So the prosecution wants permission from the judge to say, look, lady, we talked about a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Are you going to put peanut butter on that? But in order to do that, to ask the question that, which is leading the witness, the judge has to sign off. And he does. He signs off on it because the prosecution first attempts to hand the lady a piece of paper that has the peanut butter and jelly sandwich recipe on it. And she looks at it and starts talking about baloney. So why do you, what do you think the motivation of a witness would be that? I think when she told the story in the first place, it was because she was trying to say that lady didn't like that lady was like, she was going to get shot and scared her so bad. She was going to shoot anybody else that tried to stop what happened next. So she shot this guy in self-defense and then we were trying to help. And I think that's the story she told the police and the police just wrote it down on a factual basis. And then the prosecution took it all together and like went, okay, well, this looks like first degree manslaughter to me. Because the mistake, I think, in, in my opinion, is when the prosecutor decides to charge anything where, and I get it, like the cop basically said, you know, the raised pocket. What they were trying to say was that Banks put the razor back in the pocket so it away when he was shot. So Mary Reed had been given the, if it's her, she had been given the opportunity to step away from the heated moment, go back out the front door and leave. But instead, she took the time to go to her purse, set her purse down, take the gun out, shoot this guy that had put away his razor and was about to sit back down. And then she turns around and she, she knows she's done something wrong and she throws the gun away. But the problem is Booker's story makes no sense. Every version of Booker's story makes no sense. Right. And so why would she do that? I don't know. Do because she was there and there was a dead person there. I wondered if she killed him or covered up for who did. Um, because that was my thought. And I, and they don't, elaborate further as to whether or not um, Booker would have been familiar with Mary Reed and her history of amnesia. Um, I feel like Mary Reed was possibly genuinely unable to say whether or not she had done it. Yeah. And I think, I, I do think that was taken advantage of here, but I, I'll tell you what, man, I feel like either way, Mary Reed is the victim. She, she was absolutely, I mean, a man came at her with a razor. Now, the weird thing to me is um, I don't see, without there being some sort of underlying motive, I don't understand what the deal with Booker was, right? Yeah, Mary Reed may not have even been in the bar. At that time, right? Yeah, yeah that purse and that receipt <laughs> are never linked in a way that the court accepts. Well, and to me... <laughs> The only reason uh, in a case like this, I feel like she needed the police to believe her story at the scene, right? Mm. And so she gives all these details, like you know, she said she was going to cut us or she was going to shoot us, right? I'm sorry. You know, and so that's her story, like when it happened. 
But then, like, as time goes by, they go to trial. She realizes, like, oh, I can't do this to this innocent person, right? Except the prosecution didn't allow her to change her story because they brought out her initial statement and they treated her as a hostile witness. Yeah. And so, to me, it was... I don't see another reason except to possibly be um, avoiding uh, taking responsibility for what you did or covering up for somebody else that you would end up in this like strange sort of uh, back and forth. Cause it's almost like, you know, her, her back and forth is almost with herself. Right. Yeah. As far as like what's happening there. And so to me, um, it seems like that, um, that could have very well played in, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't go along with sort of how the rest of it goes, right? As far as her being um, compensated and then uncompensated, and yeah, this woman—I I hate to say it, but she sort of stays for quite some. Like it doesn't—it does not go well for her. I mean, she is eventually exonerated, never compensated. Definitely lost quite a bit of time. If you go through the court record. There are numerous instances where they're discussing the fact that she she had something wrong. And it wasn't just amnesia. It probably wasn't murder. Um, well, I think that that's pretty clear. I, I feel like when you respond by shooting somebody that has a razor coming at you, um, even if he had put it in his pocket, I don't. Now, I mean, this would be like this whole long like argument to have. I personally don't think that a threat would be abated just because a man that had followed you with a razor had put it away. Um, and I would argue that staunch, right? Um, and so I could, I could see where she would feel the need to protect herself if it was in fact Mary and that is in fact what happened. But the prosecution was so busy trying to get this testimony in that she was going to shoot the people trying to uh, help her, like, immediately following the incident. He was trying to say, like, oh, this wasn't self-defense. She was, like, on a rampage, right? Yeah. And so by doing that, they actually made it sort of seem like, uh, like they didn't prove the elements required, right? They were too busy trying to get it to be this not a defense. Uh, not a self-defense case that they didn't even prove manslaughter. And I see that very clearly. But to me, it just, it really makes me wonder, like, what was really happening here? Yeah, I, I never really get to the bottom of of this one. I, I, I presented what I know. I read a lot more on it. Like, I've read a lot. There were some uh, interlocutory judgments in this case. I read all the way through the final appeal, appeal on it. It is heartbreaking from the perspective of Mary Reed. And I pretty much have zero sympathy for Banks that, um, I, you know, I get it, he died. I, I do not believe crime. I believe self-defense shooting, um, unless something were to be brought to me where it was like Booker did it, and maybe Mary Reed witnessed it, and there's something else going on. I could believe something like that. I just can't, like, you know, Mary Reed is sort of found catatonic after. So I, I sort of went, okay, maybe she is involved with it. 
But I don't think in any way, shape, form, or fashion that I think the defense is justification. It's a self-defense claim that, like, there's no, which, which in and of itself means no crime occurred. It's a justifiable homicide. Correct. I. That's all I got on this one. You got anything else? Well, yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting that uh, so Reed was awarded four hundred fifty thousand dollars damages. Um, yes. By the state, and uh, that was because in nineteen eighty four, the state of New York passed the Unjust Conviction and Imprisonment Act which entitled any citizen that had been wrongly convicted and are imprisoned compensation for the hardship caused them. And so Mary Reed filed a claim under the act in 1985. Um, that would have been about um, nine years after her exoneration. Yes. Uh, she felt she deserved compensation for the time she had spent in prison. And on December 12, 1985, the court determined that Reed was unjustly convicted and imprisoned and found the state liable. But then, on August 10, 1987, the Supreme Court of New York affirmed the finding. Wait. Yeah, it goes on for a while longer. Okay, I'm sorry. On August 10, 1987, the Supreme Court of New York affirmed the finding that um, he was unjustly convicted and imprisoned. And then, um, on July 21st of 1990, so three years after the Supreme Court of New York affirmed the finding, um, Reed was awarded $450,000 in damages. Um, on March 21st, 1991, Reed's case went before the New York Court of Appeals with the state's claim that no definite, clear, convincing proof existed that Reed did not commit any of the crimes for which she had been convicted, and therefore she was not entitled to the compensation. On May 7th, 1991, Reed lost her compensation, and um, the court stated that a reversal of a conviction did not mean actual innocence and innocence and Mary Reed was never compensated. Yep. Is that how it stands to this day? Yep. That's interesting to me because it doesn't actually um say see, I, I don't know. What do you think about that? Um, I think there's a lot of contradictory arguments being made from the before this case even began. Well, sure. And I would say that a reversal of a conviction would still be um, someone who had been wrongly imprisoned. Yep. Even without clear and convincing evidence of innocence, because you're kind of going the whole opposite direction there, right? Well, um, they're saying that different standards apply because under that act, this is compensation civilly for, for criminal acts that have been overturned. So they're saying that the standards are flip-flopped to preponderance from reasonable So with beyond reasonable doubt is true for criminal cases. But the state is put in an adversarial position where they must just present that instead of 99%, they only have to present 51. They have to say that, like, the standard is preponderance. There is a possibility she did it, and it's based on this preponderance of the evidence, and there was no other evidence. 
great, except you, I feel like, um, I don't know if you're reading off of something there, but. No, I'm not. Okay, I feel like uh, you, the roles are split there. She would have to prove by the preponderance of the evidence at a 51% mark that she didn't do it. Except they brought the claim against her claim. So well, it, it was starts out that she needs to say the 51% mark that they owe her money because she did prison time. And then when it flips, they have to overturn it. You know what I'm saying? You're paying it. In the Court of Appeals? Yeah. The Court of Appeals would just find if she had shown it or not. Clearly, they thought they were supposed to be fine. Well, I don't know. I'm just saying, well, my understanding of it, you could be absolutely right. But to me, um, it's interesting because I don't, uh, I don't see, I, uh, well, I guess the state court decided, right, that that was their standard. And as long as they hold it up or whatever. But to me, I feel like that was wrong. An overturned conviction is a wrongfully imprisoned person. There yeah, it, it, it's, that. <laughs> it, it's it's more than wrong. It is it's it's like really messy. Uh, and the deeper that you dig into it, it gets more wrong. And that's why I was saying, by the time I got to the 1991 claim, it was uh, disheartening to say the least. It's actually quite terrible, like because you you have a young lady who defends herself only briefly, one shot, no overkill of a guy who is identified as coming at her with a razor. Right. She spends multiple years in prison, then gets out on parole, and then everything is overturned for her, except she can't get the compensation from that. Now she's never brought up or considered. You know, to be guilty. right, to be guilty, except in the eyes of the state not wanting to compensate. Right, and so that you know that uh, like the politics of that uh, compensation act come into play there, and I understand that. But at the same time, it's two different things that they're talking about there. Like as far as actual innocence versus like a conviction being overturned. A lot of times, in the process of getting a conviction overturned you don't actually get the chance to prove your actual innocence. I mean, that's pretty standard across the board how, like, criminal procedure works, right? It's more about the state proving guilt or not, or not proving guilt, right, than it would be actually proving your innocence. Our entire criminal justice system, like, it, it at this point, contrary even if it seems like it it's not like there's nothing based on a defendant proving innocent right yeah and so that's so bizarre to me that um they brought that up at that point but i mean it is what it is right yeah I, just generally speaking this case is a little weird like it's a lot weird. at, it's at every turn there never should have been an arrest no, there shouldn't have been. And and again, it there was such a strange beginning with the the uh, bartender like stating what she said. And I, I don't know, I just find it really strange. Even given if everything she said was true, it was self-defense. It, I, and I mean self-defense to the point where it wasn't necessary charges at all, right? 
I, I just, I don't see how they're going to, you know, not see it that way. But then I think the murky water starts with the witness being weird. And that's not a reflection of the defendant. Right. And they, they misguided that. But that, that was it. I just wanted to mention that about the conversation. Because I thought that that was just like one more slap in the face. Right? Cause oh, you're, to- you're totally right. It was horrible that they did that to her. When our system uh, decides to be broken on a person, right? Um, which is often, uh, it, you get like, you know, you get slapped both ways, right? Coming and going. And, uh, it is a little bit unbelievable that had a little bit of common sense and logical thinking been applied by uh, players in this, the investigators early on, right? Yeah. Um, they could have avoided ruining this woman's life, essentially. Because, I mean, however it panned out eventually, there's no question that this, this would have ruined her life. I hope she, you know, rebounded and, and overcame it. But, like, it kind of irritates me anytime I see situations that um, and, you know, relying on court documents because they're supposed to be reliable with regard to the fact of the case. You know, there's no question here that this is ridiculous. I, I'm honestly surprised that the court, the court of appeals didn't, you know, say something. But also, I guess they sort of did when they said that the prosecutor was so focused on making it uh, not be a self-defense case that they were unable to prove the elements of the crime. Yeah. Right. So I think that they did kind of say that. But to me, if you're the prosecutor going, hey, I need to make sure I'm proving this wasn't a self-defense murder. Right. I feel like you've kind of missed the boat there. I would I would tend to agree with what you're saying. Like, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know why they get in these positions. And sometimes I want to look up. The process. That's so long ago, though. Yeah, it is a really long time ago. I had gone on to uh, look up Mary Reed, and I don't know for sure that what I'm about to say comes if I read it correctly. Like, I, so I found this situation where uh, there was another felony conviction for the same person. Of oh, really? Rob- yeah, and I wondered if that's where the weapons charge came from. Um, there was a robbery in the third degree. She would be 77 years old today, but the date of the, so the, the birth date on May 6th, and then the date she was received in um, server sentence was May 7th, and I couldn't make those dates work, but it was the only Mary Reed in 73. Does that make, you see what I'm saying there? And I just could not figure out, like, how all of that gone for that to be her, because that might make it make more sense as to why they moved so quick and manslaughter is that they also had the property. But I don't know that that is the case. Well, it never came up, right? No, it doesn't come up. But it's the only Mary Reed that's arrested in, like, 73 now. 
But wait, didn't that? Oh, sorry, I got. So, what year did this happen? Okay, so Mary Reed is involved in a 1972 bar shoot. 1972. She gets convicted in 1972. Okay. There's a record of a non-arrested Mary Reed. So there's no arrest for Mary Reed in 1970. But there is a record of this woman being received into a New York prison on May 7, 1970. Follow me there? Mm-hmm. So when I went back and looked at this, Mary Reed went to trial in April of 1970. And I was thinking, maybe this other robbery conviction is also her. It's the same woman. She's never arrested in 1973, but she suddenly goes to state prison. That's Mary Reed that was born May 16th, 1976. And we have would, no way to know if that's No, right. I do not. But I was just pointing it out to you because I thought maybe, maybe there's racism at play here in the 70s. Maybe it's the fact that she's, um, you know, already sort of stuck for a better word but that's so this shooting took place in westchester county that other mary reed had a charge in kings county that like doesn't show up and the last thing that happened to her is she's released december 14th huh so that's why i don't think that that could be her well uh, hmm. i don't know that gets confusing uh, but yeah, I would say that if if it were her, um, you were saying stuck. Yeah, when you're stuck, uh, when you have a record, you immediately become a lot easier to uh, target by the police or to uh, present charges against by the prosecutor or however you want to look at it, right? Yeah. It's a lot harder to to be innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. I agree. That's all I got on this one. Anything else? No. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show. And you can always use the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at 
collaborating creation, and they will generally do something for the people come time like that. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is crimexs at labbroadcreation.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance. But plain water can be boring, and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugar. That's why we love Pure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine. Specifically, when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife, I use Pure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. And right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space. I do a lot of that work night, the hours, and I always have some cure with me to go into my water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs sometimes studio up and down the trails now cure hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate the formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink himalayan salt it's free from artificial flavors from sweeteners and preserves pure hydration is vegan gluten-free and non-gmo making it a great option for anyone with dietary restriction preferences packets are convenient use you just mix them with your water and you drink they're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TrueCrimeXS for 20% off your That's T R U E C R I X S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes and TrueCrimeXS. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality all-natural real ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your They have all-natural whole food ingredients. And they contain naturally occurring MCT coconut. There's no artificial flavor, no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn. They want me to talk about my love of coffee. The truth is, I don't want coffee. Let me tell you something. My wife has to have a cup of coffee. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done at the beginning of the relationship is she used to go and start. I have 
figured that out by always trying to be It's not going to be every single day of time when I met her, but for the most almost every I make her coffee. I put creamers together and I make sure that she has. So with Laird, he started experimenting morning almost two decades He found that when he started adding fats like coconut oil, he had amazing. Gradually perfected fuel. They began sharing it with friends in the surf. I'm an ocean guy. I saw this item. I'm like, okay, we're gonna try this. Are you ready to feel more energy, more focused, and support? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant based to fuel you. Sunrise, sun, set. You can use our promo code at checkout to save it today. Our offer code for Laird is going to be True Prime X X. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creation, True Prime XS. That will get uh, at Laird will get 15% off. Some of the other places will get 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is uh the third one is liquid IV. so let's talk about the real reason behind late night tv binging back to back zoom meeting going on walk friend everyday hydration not just high energy liquid iv is the number one powdered hydration brand it's now available free this is years Hydration multiplier sugar is a proprietary zero sugar hydration with no artificial sweetness. It's got three times the electrolyte. It's also got eight vitamins. Well, liquid IV hydrates times faster than water flow. Keep your daily routine exciting. Free. It's got white, green, grape, and lime. I love all of these, but I think that my favorite. Uh, white peach I use as a secondary flavor and lemon lime I my kids, my kids. Uh, liquid IV believes that equitable access to abundant water sounds healthy. They also partner with leading innovative help protect both their water and their people. To date, liquid IV has donated over Thirty-nine million. You can get twenty percent off when you grab Liquid IV hydration sugar or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrime. That's twenty percent off anything. Shop better hydration today. Promo code TrueCrimeX. And the last sponsor I want to tell you is Zencast. We're part of Zencaster Network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our season. Uh, Meg and I experimented a lot to put the podcast together. And the truth is, Zencaster is an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring the show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast, you can log in using your browser. You start recording a high quality podcast 
you can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video yes. You get to feel a sense of zen, knowing Zen cast multi-layered back sure you always have the highest quality, even if it's a You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster post-production makes it sound utterly It automatically removes those as often You can set the right podcast levels while producing back. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second. Zencaster is all in. If you thought about podcasting, you realize you need a lot of those days are now over. With Zencaster all in one podcast, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com pricing. Use my code, True Crime. You're going to get 30% off first any Zen plan. You can also check other plans that have failed. I want you to have the same easy All my So, Zencaster.com pricing. The offer goes to success. And it's time for you to share your story. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a um, so New Era cap headwear and apparel brand found 1920 in Buffalo, Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era caps. My dad and I have been multiple iterations of basic caps here. We collect styles and Now, my teenage, I started own cap as several New Eras as century. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits all top same pair of ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what players are wearing. Not to mention, New Era is the leading headwear manufacturer quality licensed product. You can support your favorite college or pro team style from the official headwear provider for MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylus accessory, ensemble, and subscribe access. Just shop. The official headwear New Era Cap Com N W R A C Com slash True Crime Access. You can also use the code Crime at checkout. And that's 15% off your order. Promo code Crime 